Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. My guest today is James Gray, whose new film Armageddon Time is not only his best, in my opinion, but his most personal. Maybe that's no coincidence. In the movie, Gray tells the story of a boy growing up in 1980 New York whose family, friends, and environment bear more than a passing resemblance to Gray's own experiences in that era, and as you'll hear in the following interview, that is entirely intentional. I interviewed Gray at the Telluride Film Festival a few hours before the movie's North American premiere, where we talked on an outdoor patio at his hotel. As I sat down, James noticed my notebook, which had a still of Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn in Best Friends on the cover, which led immediately into a discussion of Goldie Hawn and her place in Armageddon time. Our conversation begins there. There's this scene where they go see Private Benjamin and they start talking about Goldie Hawn. My parents loved Goldie Hawn. Do you know how many people know who Goldie Hawn is now? Well, it's funny because I was thinking that watching the movie because I Oh, you saw it already? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'm a couple years younger than you, but I remember Private Benjamin, when it came out, it was the biggest. I mean, it was huge. And I thought it was such a perfect reference because that movie, now nobody really thinks about it, but it's such a marker of its time. I just remember, well, I mean, it was there because my parents took me in almost those exact circumstances, you know, uh, walking outside, something was wrong with my grandfather. Private Benjamin was the movie. I really have to lie. I won't lie to you. I have to tell you the truth. I wanted a clip of Private Benjamin just to cut to for a brief minute and then to cut to them exiting. Couldn't get it. I was sad. So now you just have to hear about it. See the poster. Goldie's face. It did. That was the moment in the movie where I just... I, I, again, it was such a perfect detail, and it just made me think your recall is so dead on. And I was curious for you with this movie, how much of this springs, like, what's the intersection between your own memory and autobiography and research and imagination? I mean, how close is this to your own experiences? I tried not to use my imagination at all. I tried to not use research at all. My only research was my brother with whom I'm very close now. I would call him up and say, Ed, what happened when we had this or that? Or do you remember, he was very helpful to us on small things like the plates uh, in the house. And he said, oh, they were white with a green floral floor pattern on the outside, blah, blah, blah. And we found exactly the plates that we had, that that kind of thing that I didn't remember that my brother did. But that was it. Uh, The rest is based on recollection uh, as best I could put it together. And uh, I, I am cursed or blessed or I don't know what word you'd want to use with a very good memory, uh, which is maybe slipping a little now. But I, I, I had a pretty clear recollection of what the hell that period was and what it was that I went through. I mean, the, the, to give you an example also is like Marianne Trump's speech to the school. Um, I had... I told my brother, I said, well, I'm going to write up what my memory of it was. And if you could independently write up your memory, I wanted to see how they matched up. And they matched up almost perfectly. So I was heartened because it meant if they both matched up perfectly, we hadn't talked about it in 30 years, it must have been somewhat accurate. So um, I made some minor tinkers, but it's that sort of thing. And I'm curious, you know, it was interesting to me that the most recent movies you've done before this are in a kind of more epic, you know, idiom uh and 
now you're going back to kind of the more intimate urban kind of movie that you're known for. How was this informed by having done those bigger movies? It was completely informed because they were both, uh, I mean, it is not easy to go and work in Amazonia and it's just not a place where, you know, a film crew is supposed to be. And, you know, you're caught in the middle of nowhere for four months and it's very physically difficult, obviously, after a time. And Ad Astra had its own issues. And it was an attempt to rediscover why it is I love movies and what it is I was trying to do to begin with. It's very much a response to that. And I wanted to cleanse the palate in a way from what had been very difficult experiences, each for different reasons. And Well, it's interesting because I think talking about you know, what made you love movies and want to make movies. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about influence because I love the passage in the movie where he does the Kandinsky uh, right. ripoff kind of, yeah. and, you know, is is criticized for it. And it got me thinking a lot about what the role of influence is for somebody who's an artist or a filmmaker, because, you know, I, I find you very interesting because you're obviously a guy who's very steeped in film history, but you're not the kind of filmmaker who's making overt references to other movies in your movies, at least as far as I can see. If you are, they're they're very buried. So first of all, what are some of your influences and reference points on this movie? I had very few. I resist a lot. I don't love the idea of a loss of innocence because I think that that's based on a somewhat bourgeois reading of history. It presumes that children are innocent, which they are not. And it presumes that there was a moment of beauty and purity, which there is not. So I did want to make a film about loss, but not about loss of innocence. In thinking also of it, not really as a coming of age either, because that also means there's a heroic journey that the main character takes. And for me, it wasn't about a heroic journey for that kid. In fact, if anything, it was about his moral failings, where he actually falls short. So if you're doing a movie about that, what the hell is that? I mean, I, we looked at uh, almost nothing. I did watch 400 Blows and I watched Amarcord. And that was about the where it ended. I mean, I, I couldn't find or remember really a lot of reference points to the, this sort of thing. Because it wasn't, I'm not interested in nostalgia. History is complicated. And there's multiple threads. And I didn't want to point fingers. It's, it's not like the oppressor and the oppressed, the good guy and the bad guy. It's you can be the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time. And so all of those things factor into a, an idea of hopefully some complexity and texture. And what that movie is, I didn't know. So... I tried to kind of reach out from my own inside, like basically like plumb my worst qualities, my vulnerabilities and be honest about where it is I felt short. I fell short. Was there any fear involved in that? I mean, I would think it's kind of terrifying to A, present yourself in that way. Because I, and, and, and let me tell you, I loved the movie for that reason. I actually, and I loved that character for that reason, the fact that he was flawed and that you showed him not necessarily making the right moral choices, not sticking up when he hears the other kids using racist terms, things like that. I'm glad you, uh, that, that you liked that. It's uh, a lot of times we like to perceive of, movies as a kind of extension of our dreams. And when that is a 
when that is the MO, we run into a problem because we want our dreams to end happily. It's one of the most unpleasant things in the world when you wake up and you, you, know, you realize a dream has not ended the way you wanted. It's very unpleasant, right? It makes you almost feel bad half the day and then you're sort of lucky or forget it. Sometimes it haunts you more than that. And so a, a movie that is like a dream which does not end happily or does not promote a positivity, it's a difficult place to live. And audiences, at first, I think it's more rewarding through time, but I think at first they have a natural resistance to it. And with good reason, it's not comfortable. So I did dedicate myself, frankly, to what's wrong with me. I didn't want to do like a, what are they, what's the expression is like, um, um, I just was talking about this, uh, virtue signaling, you know, where you say, look how nice or great I am or whatever. The ambition was the opposite. It was to say, you know, warts and all. And I've tried to be a better person over the last several decades, but, you know, I fell really short and I don't feel great about it at all. It haunts me. I feel terrible about it. But on the other hand, I have to forgive myself. I was 12 years old or 13 years old. And you don't have a rounded, textured, nuanced, advanced view of history or the world. You do the best you can under those circumstances. So, yeah, that was part of the MO, but it was not pleasant. Well, it's an interesting point you make about how these kinds of movies do tend to be the ones that linger a bit. And, you know, some movies that we think of uh, that have now become classics, you know, I mean, just this isn't a movie like yours, but, you know, The Conversation, for example, a movie that wasn't successful when it came out that now cinephiles, it's like their favorite, one of their favorite movies. But from a practical point of view, as a filmmaker who likes to work in that area, what are the challenges? Because you need to, you need to get backing for these movies, which, you know, these well-resourced movies in this moment and there's not necessarily an immediate payoff. I mean, how do you navigate that as just from a practical point of view? It's a great question that you ask. And my answer is not an easy one. I would say that the one thing I try to do is forget it, ignore it. I try to ignore trends in cinema. I try to ignore what's popular. I try to ignore how, quote, difficult it would be to get made, close quote. I kind of put the horse blinders on and I try to get the best cast I can. And I try to get the most money I can. Not for me, I pay myself not, frankly, that much money. I try to put it all on the screen. And, you know, you forget how long ago 1980 is. You know, it's further away than, you know, The Godfather was from 72 to 45. This is further than that. So I didn't think of that at the time. So now all of a sudden I've got to get these cars from 1980 and it becomes an elaborate proposition. But it's mostly getting cast, which I've been very, very lucky to do, and to try and not think about other things that might get in my way. Because if I did, I will tell you this, Jim, like half the stuff I've done would not get made. I remember I wrote The Immigrant and I gave it to a friend of mine to read. He said, you're never going to get this made, not ever. And I couldn't let that in. I was angry at him. Lovely person, by the way, but I, I got angry. So don't tell me that. Let them tell me that. And I think it's part of the problem is we censor ourselves. Creative people can't be doing that. So I just try to, to not even think about it, to block it out. 
we brought up casting and you have a terrific cast in this movie, but I'm wondering, uh, was there anything unusual or different about casting this movie where, you know, you're casting people to play your parents, your grandfather, it was weird. yourself? Yeah. Really weird. By the way, I, I will tell you in candor, they're uh, creepily like the people they're playing. It's very odd. I haven't shown the movie to my brother yet. Uh, my instinct is that he will find it a very strange experience. We like, for example, we gave Tony Hopkins my grandfather's hat to wear, and my mother's outfits were all from Sears and Roebuck, circa 1978, 77. So we got those clothes. It's a weird, eerie thing, and yeah, and the the challenge is you have to forget that because it becomes its own thing. If you try to force Anne Hathaway or Jeremy or, or Tony into like some box, you're denying yourself and them some of the beauty that they can bring to it. The truth is, is that I didn't do that. I made I make many mistakes, of course, as every creative person does. But the one thing I didn't do was that. The irony is they kept coming back to what it was that I originally had in my mind. I mean, at one point, the car pulls up to the house. Jeremy gets out and the family gets out and Jeremy says, lock the doors. I never told him to say it. I never said, say this thing. I never told him my father said it. My father said that every time we left the car, somehow he knew to improvise exactly that way. So I guess what I did do was lay the ground rules down for how they would act and be, and they ran with it fully absorbed in who they were playing. And in terms of ground rules, what were some of the visual principles that you had with Darius Kanji? What kinds of discussions did the two of you have about how you wanted the movie to look? I have, it's my third movie with him. I have a kind of a shorthand with him a little bit. We're very close, uh, personally and professionally. And the way we work generally is very much with him in the role of a lighting cameraman, which is the color, the direction of the light, the look of a scene is a lot from him. The lenses and the shots are all mine. Now, it doesn't mean that if he says, James, this shot's terrible, I won't listen to him, of course. It's always a give and take. But that aspect is pretty much my domain because I don't like anybody else. That's my language, you know. That's what it is I'm doing to express the story. But in terms of light, we do what we always do. We go to the museums and we start talking. We look at books. I have a wonderful art collection, art book collection, which is great. And he, he became very attracted to what he called an earthy realism, you know. And I remember looking at a couple of paintings by Vermeer that he really loved. Not the, not the typical ones, but like a, a kind of slightly underexposed, out of the key light look, because I kept telling him that my father would remind us constantly, you know, this is 1979, energy crisis and all that, turn off the lights, don't keep the lights. My house was very dark or lit by a room that was in another, you know. So I told him that and he was, oh, that's very good, very good. So we looked at a lot of paintings where light sources were either indirect or diminished. And he really gravitated, I remember, to one specific Vermeer painting uh, of a young woman at a kitchen table, but out of her key light. Um, and I thought that was quite beautiful. And, and then, of course, we looked at some 1980 movies for what the film stock looked like. You can't really achieve that anymore. It's sort of over. Kodak changed the chemical formation of its emulsions. They brought in what was called T-grain, which is a higher 
resolution stock in the mid mid 1980s. So we had a lot of I remember we had a lot of discussion and trouble with creating a film texture that looked real. I don't know if we even ever got there. I mean, I, I wish Kodak would manufacture some of those great stocks that were very slow. They were probably 100 ISO, but they were beautiful. And the grain was like the strokes of paint on the canvas. Um, but they haven't done that. They make the stocks now for DI. Yeah, I mean, now it's, I mean, they spent all this time trying to get rid of the grain and now that's what people want going back. And I, I wanted to ask you about that because I was curious how you got the look that you got because I assumed I, that maybe you would shot on film, but then as you say, today's film stocks are, you'd almost have to shoot on 16 or something to get the 35 millimeter look. You raise that. a great point. Okay, that's great. I love that you asked me that. You're the first person to do that. I, I, my intention was to shoot on 16 and then scan it in and finish on DCP and then maybe go to a print for 35. We, we tested it and it looked really great, but there's huge problems with it. The level of control that you have is quite weak. Uh, it is not a mature form, really. There aren't a lot of people who shoot it. The lab support is not really there. I also had trouble, frankly. The lenses are equally important in the look of a movie. So we used Super Baltar lenses, which are from the mid-1960s. And they have a great period look. But we didn't shoot 16. I wanted to shoot 35. I've shot every film I've made on 35. And we tested 35. And it's gorgeous. But I didn't shoot 35. Because... It's just not manufactured for what it is I want to do anymore. In order to get the look that I wanted, we would have to push probably two stops, underexpose two stops. I mean, really beat it up. And even then, it was picking up very little grain, like amazingly. So then what? The Alexa? The Alexa is inferior to film. But now they have the greatest thing ever, which is the Alexa 65, which is what we used using old lenses, and then adding the analog film component, scanning that, going back to digital. So the original source capturing is by an Alexa 65. I was against digital anyway, but the unsubtle truth is that I, I was quite wrong because digital has been democratizing in a kind of great way. Film is very expensive. And not everybody has, you know, Anne Hathaway and Jeremy and Tony Hopkins and Jessica Chastain. So they don't have the budget and it looks very good, the Alexa. So it's an act of snobbery. And I, I was, I've become increasingly upset with myself for advocating for 35 the way that I did. On the other hand, 35 is a beautiful medium. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it has greater temporal resolution than any digital medium. I don't know the answer. For this movie, we went Alexa 65, all lenses. It was about the best we could do because, like I said, going to 35, it didn't look right. It looked wrong. And the 16 was not a controllable, it, like, like this kind of weak quality control on the emulsion itself. And it, there's a lot of variables. And I was shooting with kids. And God forbid you get a great take and all of a sudden it's chewed up in the camera. You know, there's a lot of the, that, that stuff that we used to uh, 
we used to sort of look the other way on, but with kids, it's a different story. Well, that brings up something else I wanted to ask you about because I thought the two lead kids were both terrific. And I'm curious about that, directing child actors. Is that a diff- is it different from directing adults? How do you get- It's also a great question. It's really different. And I had to learn that during the testing. Let's say you're doing a scene with Tony Hopkins. You speak in very vague terms. I shouldn't say vague, unspecific. So I would say to, 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 to Tony, I would say, you give him the rocket or whatever, that's a, a benediction. You say, you can be an artist, that's a benediction. Oh, yes, 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 I understand. I remember I told him, I said, there is huge love between the two of you, but that doesn't mean you're always nice to him. You know, the scene in the park, I wanted him to get sort of angry at him, which he does. And so I, it's that sort of general. But for children, you have to say, say it like this, and you give them a line reading. Because if you get into motivation, it starts to break down. They don't understand what the heck it is you're talking about. He's a 12-year-old kid. The other kid was 13 or 14, whatever Jalen was. And so it has to be very more mechanical. And I was stupid enough to do a couple of elaborate master walking talks with kids. That is very difficult to do. And I think kind of an act of hubris on my part. Take 40 or something. I think 38, I think, is the one that's in the movie. Something like that. Because, you know, it's a mechanical process. Walk this speed, you know, the camera's all still here and all that. And they were really hung up, degree of difficulty, you know, 10 plus. So, yeah, it's completely different. Well, and you've got these different levels of experience with the kids and the adults. But I was also thinking, watching some of the ensemble scenes where you've got the whole family around the table, you're also probably dealing with actors who have different approaches and different styles, some of whom are maybe best on the first take, some maybe who have to warm up to it. How do you navigate all that? Like that, those, those dinner scenes, I look at those and I think those are the kinds of things that people don't realize how hard, like that's really harder hard. to me than a huge action sequence. It's way harder to do. I've done action sequence, like best editing and they're always giving it to like a movie with a lot of cuts. Much harder to cut a scene with two people just standing in, around or two people sitting. Yeah, to your point, that's, that is the central challenge, right? Matching energy level, uh, maximizing where each actor is. So what I did was I like to shoot only a handful of masters because I know that they will be burned out or that exactly what will happen is what you just said, which is that Tony will be great on take two and the kid will master take four and Annie and Jeremy will be great on take nine. You know, that can happen. That's terrible. And if it's in a master, you can't do anything about it. So I like to do very few masters, just ones that establish the geography of the room, and then to focus almost entirely on close-ups. Now, that's also a bear because of, uh, forgive me if this is too inside baseball, but the stage line, which is something that I don't know how many of your listeners will know this, but there's a kind of a strange rule in cinema where if the eye lines are wrong and if you cross one shoulder on one person, the other shoulder, it gets confusing. So you have to shoot, to your point, in that scene, I have three different close-ups of Anthony Hopkins. I have three on the kid. Uh, I think I had two on Jeremy. I had two on Annie, two on Grandma. Yeah. So you realize like, oh, you need to do this so many times from different angles and you need to match the energy level. That's the challenge I feel like I faced. Always trying to remember what your favorite 
style of performance energy level is and trying to match it as you move around the table. Plus, for time's sake, you don't always shoot both angles in the actor's close-up. So let's say you do Jeremy's close-up from Annie's perspective, right? And then you've got to come around uh, on another angle, but it's basically over here for his look to somebody else. The cinematographer will take a massive relight to do this to here, whereas what they'll want to do is from here, from, from a close-up on the left side or whatever, and then move over just a little bit for the kid and move around the table that way and then come around again. So you just have to keep your eye on the ball as much as you can about what it is performance-wise you like and try to nudge them in that direction. Also, I, I try to allow the actor, and usually you don't like to do this, but allow the actor to say, you know, take five or 10. You don't have to be here for this off-camera thing just so that they don't get exhausted. Thinking about everything you're saying here also leads me to a question about editing. You know, this movie, I feel like it's so delicate in its rhythms and it held my attention from beginning to end. I was never for a second bored, but it's such a subtle movie in so many ways. I could see where just the slightest miscalibration with editing could throw the whole thing off. And what did you find were the biggest challenges in the editing process? Well, first of all, thank you. I'm glad you didn't think it was boring. The number one thing I think is wrong with streamers and staying at home and watching movies is nothing to do with the business of it. It's everything to do with the fact that people can press pause and stop the movie and go to the toilet or reheat the sweet and sour pork from last week, you know, whatever, and then recontinue. And it's our job as uh, f uh, filmmakers to maintain your interest from beginning to end. So I took it as a point of pride to be able to try to do that because it's, you know, it's a theatrical film made for focus. They're the last man standing in this arena. And I wanted to make something under two hours uh, that was sufficiently interesting that you wouldn't need to go to the bathroom 48 minutes in. So what you think of it as is, the cinema is a very interesting art form because every other art form, you know, you look at uh, cave paintings of Lascaux. I mean, they don't know exactly, but they're 40,000 years old. You've got somewhere around 1400, 1450, you begin to get chiaroscuro and perspective. So you're talking like 39,000 years, basically, where those ideas were not incorporated in the work. Look at the cinema. 1928, 27 is the jazz singer, 28 maybe the first full-length sound film. By 1932, you have an ocean of masterpieces made by incredible artists. It matured very quickly, which tells you that the human race needed it, that we'd been craving it for a while, like I was saying, like a dream that you have. You see Wagner reaching for it for the ring cycle and not being able to He's hitting up against the limits of opera. Even Bosch with his trip that, you know, you, you see artists trying to reach for something and it was cinema. And the way that it evolved, where you have essentially 10 or 11, 10 minute chunks of heightening tensions. One 10 minute chunk that leads to a heightened tension in the next 10 minutes leads to another heightened tension is a bit of a lost art form. So I, my editor and I became very obsessed with following almost a kind of rule of these 10 or 11 10-minute 10 chunks. 
Now, there are many theories as to how that evolved. Some people think it's because of the dot on the upper right-hand screen, which we used to see, for real changes, where the audience unconsciously sensed a new movement of the story was happening. Uh, there was a lot of arguments for and against that, but I think it has validity, and we treated it that way. Uh, the challenge that we faced with the editing was more or less the last third because it was just too much stuff there. I mean, there was stuff between him and his brother where they reconciled, and which was beautifully acted. It was great, but I mean, it was like you needed to wrap it up. And so the brother, his character gets a little sacrificed, which is uncomfortable for me because my brother is very dear and very close to me now. But... Uh, you know, some things have to go. So it was more or less the last third where we had to really contract things. And how do you know in the editing process that the movie is working? I mean, you're watching, you and the editor are watching this footage over and over again. Do you have trusted people that you show it to and try to get a sense of their reactions? You know, who do you show the movie to and how often in post? Well, I have to say it's a great question. It's a challenge that we face. I like to work on something until I feel that I can't see it anymore. I don't like to show it early. I know some people do, they show it, like even if it's imperfect, they say they show it. I like to show it when I've done all I could to the movie, because then I find that I learn much more. When I show a movie after, you know, five weeks of editing, people invariably say 98% of what they say is mistakes I knew were there that I haven't worked on yet. I say, yeah, no, I was getting to that. I just hadn't got... And that's not helpful to me. So what I do is, and I have to say, I'm not great at certain things in movies. Uh, obviously, uh, maybe your listeners will think I'm not great at a lot of things. But I'm very good at seeing what functions story-wise and doesn't up through the first, like, I would say eight weeks or ten weeks of editing. Then I start to lose perspective. And that's when I start bringing people in whom I trust. My wife is a has great taste. I trust her. My friend Matt Reeves has great taste. I trust him. My friend Ted Witcher, I, he has great taste. I trust him. My friend Ethan has great taste. So yeah, I have a bunch of people I show it to, and then I just get feedback. Well, and I guess to wrap things up, kind of going back around a little bit to the beginning when we were talking about how autobiographical this film is, you know, I feel like it's, it's always a strange experience for a director to watch their own movies, especially close to when you've made it. But with this one, it seems like it would be even more peculiar because, as you were saying, you're watching Jeremy Strong do things that your dad did. You're watching Anthony Hopkins do things that your grandfather did. I mean, what is the experience for you as a viewer like watching this movie? Is it almost like a sort of expensive home movie or something? Or what's that? That's exactly the right way to put it. It's a very odd thing. I mean, I didn't, if for some reason, I don't know why this is the case. It didn't re reverberate with me. I was on set shooting basically outside my own home. I mean, it was 90 feet away. The, my home, the woman didn't let us shoot there. So, we, you know, just down the block a little, same house, basically. And we shot outside my public school, all that stuff. It didn't hit me until the editing. I don't know why that is. Like one editing thing, I just all of a sudden saw the movie. And in context, I was like, that's my home. And you find that uh, sometimes I was a little too ruthless, you know. I would make cut downs and friends of mine would say well, what do you why'd you cut that thing i love that thing You're like oh it wasn't boring no no bring that thing back that's when you rely on others the most and particularly on this movie you're quite right i, I viewed it 
I mean, there are things in it that's like a whole movie. I mean, that dinner, first, there's a dinner scene in the film, which is about eight minutes long. It's very long. That is like dinner at my house in 1980. And I was an obnoxious, entitled little jerk. And my parents were insane. And my grandparents were, you know, trying to be good, but also sometimes awful. And my brother was beating me up every five seconds. That was it. So... For me, it was like watching a time, it's like going into a time machine or something. And that's weird. But by the way, it's also a tremendous gift. Like I felt like I had been given this beautiful present and wasn't exactly sure I deserved it or why, but I was gonna do my best when they gave me that little treat. And it was a treat. Well, uh, it was a treat for the audience as well. I mean, I think it's a really beautiful movie and well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.